The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here at Sacred City. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Um, The worship gathering is a foundational place to come, this right here, to come and be formed into the image of God. So we're here not just to express our worship to God, that's part of it. We're also here to be shaped and be formed um, by God himself. And that happens through um, the worship, that we, the ways that we sing, that happens through the liturgy, um, that happens through the, the prayers, that happens through the listening and hearing of the gospel being preached. And so uh, we are glad that you're here this morning to be formed, to be shaped by our great God. Um, I, we are jumping right back into the book of First Peter. We are in chapter four. We've only got a few weeks left of Peter. Uh, we've been studying it since I think August or so. So you can go back and find all of our sermons online. And we do stream our sermons on Facebook if you want to go find the video for that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to kind of jump in this morning. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 4. You can follow along with us, and I'm going to pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your sovereign providence that gets us where you want us to be. You get us where we need to be. You lead us and guide us and shepherd us in a million different ways that we don't even understand. And it took literally millions of little tiny decisions to get people here this morning um, and not somewhere across country or somewhere in a different country. Uh, There's so many things that had to happen um, for you to bring us into this gathering. And we thank you for the way that you've done it. And now as we're here, we ask that you would speak a word to us from your word um, that we need to hear that you would help us hear it, help us understand it, uh, help us believe it, and our lives would be shaped by it. Father, I I need your help. Um, As a man who has his own sins, his own struggles, his own weaknesses, that can get in the way of my speaking, I pray that you would uh, think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords. I pray that you would uh, give me a clarity that I don't possess uh, in my own natural ability, but Uh, would be a gift of the Holy Spirit. So I ask that um, this morning, help us see, read, understand, perceive the truth that is in your word this morning for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most distressing things in life is when our expectations don't line up with reality. Um, I realized this painfully a few years back when Amanda and I purchased a vacation cruise to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. After we made all the preparations, we got the babysitters all lined up, which is not an easy task when you have, at that time, three kids, okay? Babysitters work in shifts at this point. So you have to have multiple babysitters to be able to be gone for five days, right? We got all the babysitters lined up, Uh, We bought the cruise line tickets, we bought the airline tickets, we packed the bags, we boarded the planes, we were at this point full of expectation of the joy that this trip was going to bring us. After 10 years of, 
you know, having three kids and 10 years of marriage, we were really excited to spend some time together. We had never been on a cruise before, and this one was going to this little private island, and we thought it was going to be a perfect way of celebrating this 10 years of marriage. But as we boarded our, oh man, as we boarded our, I just, uh, I, can, I can remember this. As we boarded our cruise with all of our bags at the Port of Miami, if you've ever been there, the Port of Miami is literally like a mile out in the middle of nowhere, basically. It's hot, steaming hot. We got all of our bags. We're excited. We're boarding with anticipation. The ticket lady looks down at my wife and notices that she is pregnant. She kind of nonchalantly asked her how far along she was, and Amanda told her 24 weeks. The lady's face suddenly fell into a depressing scowl. She said, are you serious? We assured her that we were. She then told us that we were two weeks over the allowed limit to board the ship. Of course, this was in the fine print in the handicap accessibility page on the website. There was nothing she could do. There was nothing we could do. An hour later, we watched that boat cruise off into the sunset without us. It was a brutal disappointment. It was not the best anniversary. Let's just say that. Now, something like that might not have ever happened to you, but I know by virtue of being an American that you have bought something or you have signed up for something that promised you many things and after you got it, you realized that you had been oversold and underdelivered, right? The reality of the experience didn't match the hype, didn't match the promise. Age-defying makeup. Magic diet pills. Sorry, Phil. Shoes that guarantee you to jump higher or run faster. Right? My Air Jordan 23s did nothing for my bitty basketball skills. I still couldn't reach the free throw from the free throw line, granny style. I still couldn't reach it. Right? Investing in something that you believe is going to bring you promised dividends only to find out that you've been suckered and you will never see your expected rewards, that experience is gut-wrenching. It's demoralizing. It's depressing. And I've seen many time, you know, many first-time mothers and fathers, expe- usually moms, I'll just say this, expectantly waiting this precious child. They can't wait to pull it in, hold it. They can't wait for this maternal connection that's going to happen. They can't wait for the picturesque reality of their small new family to be seen on their Insta feed. That they think in Instagram posts these days. This is what I'm going to say. This is what it's going to look like. Can't wait to get 200 likes on this bad boy. And then comes reality. Baby won't eat. Baby won't sleep. Baby needs holding all the time. Baby screams. I don't know why the baby is screaming. Baby just keeps screaming. Right? Mom becomes so tired, she can't even put the makeup on her face to get the Insta shot that she was hoping for. Right? This parenting thing is a lot more difficult than I had imagined. Expectations didn't line up reality, and it brings about a great distressing in our life. It is surprising, and oftentimes, these distressing moments in life when our realities don't measure up with our ex- expectations. And if we don't know how to handle these moments, they can bring a lot of negative consequences to us. We get the relationship we are looking for. It doesn't meet our expectations. Now what? How do I handle this? Now, this is most true in our experience with God. All of us, do you know this? All of us bring expectations with us into our relationships with people and also into our relationships with God. Do you know what yours are? The most common 
There's many of them, but the most common are the expectations that God would keep bad things from happening to us. It's almost like a primal expectation that's in our DNA that we naturally want and believe that God, if he's good and if he's really God, he'll keep all suffering away from us. That God would give us what we most want. How could he withhold it from us if he's good and he's God? How many of you have tried to make a deal with God sometime in your life? God, if you help me get this girl or get this job or pass this test or gain this promotion or buy this new thing, I'll do whatever you ask of me. My favorite, right? I wonder how many people right now have been praying or maybe last week, God, if you let me win the Powerball, I'll give you half of it. So generous. But when you dig down under those desires and you get down inside that mindset, kind of at base, what you realize is this is kind of an inherent religious mindset. And we're going to see today that this mindset It's religious, and yet it's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's contrary to Christianity. This is one way we're going to see that religion and Christianity are opposed and at odds with one another. See, this mindset that God, if he's really there, he's going to kind of bless my life and make it better and kind of brush away all the difficulties from my life and keep suffering at bay and keep bad things from happening to me, that this is a way to use religion. See, it views religion as a way to get God to do the things for us that we most want. God, in the most holy way that we can imagine, becomes our divine assistant helping us achieve our dreams. And many times Christianity has been packaged that way in order to get its market share in our consumeristic culture. The message was, come to Jesus and he'll make everything better. He'll give you what you've always wanted, the relationship, the career, the financial prosperity, the big house, the healthy kids, the spiritual vitality you've always longed for. Now listen, there are a million different books on Amazon right now, some of them in the bestseller list that have Christianity somewhere in the title, that have some kind of Christian author and their message is foundationally that. And I'm gonna tell you, they're not Christian. They're contrary to the message of the gospel and Christianity. They are, the technical term is syncretistic. Oh gosh, I can't even say it right now. It's syncretism. It's taking some things of the culture and some things that we really want and trying to bring them into Christianity and give you what you already want. Using Christianity to get something that you want out there, success, popularity, whatever it is. Now, why are these things so popular? Well, and, and why are they so dangerous? And they are so popular and they're so dangerous because there's a sliver of truth in it. Listen, God will make our lives better. He will give us what we most desire, but oftentimes not in the ways we want him to. And he actually changes what we most want and most desire. And we're gonna see that in our text today. Listen, this text I watched this Netflix series this last week uh, called Born Strong. It's about these world's strongest men and these huge power lifters. And before they go lift this weight that's impossible for them to lift, they they break open the smelling salt stuff and they smell it and basically become some kind of primal psychopath, right? That allows them to pull this thing up. Now listen, in a sense, in a sense, many of us, 
because of our, the comfort we have in our culture, in our society, we are still one of, if not the most prosperous country in the world. Now, that experience is not universal. There are still incredibly poor people, incredibly suffering people in our, in our society. But listen, for most of us, we get lulled to sleep by our own comfort. And this morning, this text is meant to be a smelling salt that comes underneath us and wakes us up to the reality of the Christian life as it's meant to be lived. So that's what's going to happen this morning. I'm, I'm praying. This text is meant to be a smelling salt to those of us who are sleepwalking through our lives of comfort and ease. Those of us who believe Christianity to be a way of life that makes us more comfortable in our suburbs, more acceptable by our neighbors, or a way of climbing the ladder of success and blessing, if that's your idea of Christianity, you're going to be shocked by this passage this morning. You may have your, your circuits fried if you've grown up in this health and wealth idea of Christianity. To get us situated in our text, we want to remember that the first century readers of 1 Peter, the, 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 the recipients that Peter was writing to, they were relatively new converts to Christianity who were beginning, listen, to feel the discontinuity between their, we, their new way of life as Christians and the acceptable way of life in their culture. So what happened here? These people became Christians and all of a sudden, as the spirit of God came into them and gave them new hearts and caused them to be born again to a new father, into a new family, things in their life started to change, right? They stopped getting wasted at parties, We've seen this already in our text. They stopped visiting the temples of other gods where they used to go. They stopped having sex with people who weren't their spouse. They started to live as this new community of Christians, this new missional community in the midst of a culture that was becoming more and more hostile to them. And they started to get made fun of. They started to get ostracized and marginalized and even persecuted for their new way of life following Jesus. Listen, they lost jobs because they would no longer work on Sunday. They lost friends because they would no longer party like they used to. They lost family members because they wouldn't worship the other gods like their family used to worship right? Now think about it. We, we've been shaped by Christianity a lot in our culture. So I talk to people all the time. They celebrate Christmas. They're not Christians. I'm always wondered by it. You know, I'm like, why do you do this? He's like, I'm an American and everybody likes presents, right? Right. We, but if we would be, if we grew up in a pagan society, everybody went to this temple. Everybody worshiped in this way. Everybody had a plethora of different gods that they worshiped. And all of a sudden these Christians, when they became converted, they said, all those other gods are false gods. We only worship this one God and that's Jesus Christ or the Trinitarian Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This caused conflict in their families. Can you imagine? I mean, many of you have experienced this. You have family members who, who, who are Muslim or, or you were growing up in Muslim households or Buddhist households or, or, or just new age households that kind of didn't believe in anything or kind of believed in everything. And then you became a Christ, Christian and now there's this weirdness at family reunions and there's weirdness at family celebrations and at, at holidays because you want to be shaped by the Christian gospel and the Christian uh, message and be a Christian and they have different plans and different ideas. That's what's going on in our text this morning. Now, I want you to think about it. If we could put ourselves in their shoes, what if they were just like us? What if they thought of their relationship with God as something that was going to make their life better right here, right now? Come to Jesus and everything will get better. Well, I did that and now my closest friends and my family members have left me. I'm getting made fun of. I've lost my job. What is going on here? This isn't working. This doesn't make sense. 
Now, I bet some of us might have been in that situation at some time in their life, or maybe you're there right now. Some circumstances have came into your life, and if you have the mentality that God is just going to bless you and make everything easier, when things like this come into your life, you wonder why? What is going on? Why is it so difficult? God, I'm following you. I'm trying to put one foot in front of the other and, and do, do the best that I know how of following you and things in my life are not getting easier. What's going on? This is what Peter is dealing with in his letter. And this is why Peter opens this section, listen, with one of the most comforting words in any language. It's a word that we don't use very often. I think a word that we should regain the use of put it back in our vocabulary. He writes to them, look at chapter four, verse 12. Now, imagine you're in this situation. Your friends have left you. Your family's abandoned you. You've lost your job. You, you, if you, maybe you had political aspirations, right? You wanna bless the city and be a part of the government and you're, you're on your way up and now you become a Christian and all of a sudden Christians are ostracized and now you're not gonna be able to be in politics anymore. Now what? Now what are you going to do? Right? Maybe you had a bed and breakfast. Maybe you had this business. And now that you're operating it according to Christian principles, you no longer will make idols for people if you're a silversmith or something. Now all of a sudden you're going to lose business. This is going to hurt your pocketbook, hurt your family. And you think, why God? Why is it so hard? And Peter writes and says this. Verse 12. Beloved. Beloved. Now, that word is agapetos in the Greek. And this is the same word that God the Father used when he spoke to Jesus at his baptism. Jesus was and is God's beloved son in whom he's well pleased. The word refers to a person who is deeply loved and cherished and usually treated with preferential treatment. Now, this, think about how shocking that would be right there. I feel possibly abandoned by God. I feel like my faith isn't working. I feel like God has left me alone. And then Peter reminds me, no, 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 you're beloved. You've been chosen by God. He's dear, he dearly loves you. He's at work protecting you. He's still, you're still in his family. Now, this is a great truth and a great reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we get adopted into the family of God. And now this is, it's crazy in one sense. The father, when he looks at us, he looks at us through the lens of Jesus. Jesus becomes our righteousness. He is our ambassador who stands in front of us as our representative. And we are now called the beloved. God loves us. His wrath towards us and his wrath towards our sin is turned away because Jesus on the cross absorbed it. And now we get to be called beloved. No matter how difficult our situation in life is, Peter wants us to know you are still beloved that God loves us and gives us access to him like a child has access with their natural father. He cares for us. He watches over us. But this is what's so trippy in this text. And, and at parents, you should get a pretty good understanding of where he's coming from here because um, it kind of relates to the way parents discipline their children. We can love them, but if we really love them, we will not give them everything they want. <laughs> if we really love them, we will not pamper them, right? We will not spoil them, basically ruin them for any relationship in their future, right? It, so they expect everything to be kind of done for them. They don't have any strength of will. They don't have any character, to develop character in our kids, to develop strength, to develop obedience requires that we bring some difficult things into their life. We give them chores, right? We make them read, right? Now, some kids just pick up a book and woo, right? You're walking by and they're like, that says stop. We're like, what? 
baby genius back here. All right, great. And other kids are like, why do I have to read? Why do you hate me? I don't need to read, right? Like, oh, you do. It's going to be difficult. We're going to sit, you're going to shut the video game off. I know that's what you want. We're going to make you read. We have to bring difficulty into our kid's life. Does that mean we do not love them? Absolutely not. It's proof of our love for them. My love is stronger than your immaturity. My love as a parent is stronger than your immature desires. So my love is going to overwhelm and overpower your immature desires so that I can love you into maturity, right? That's where we're going this morning. And so Peter goes on to say, let's look at this. Beloved, so first off, let's just settle this. No matter, and I'm I'm not saying this in a flippant or glib way, no matter how difficult your life is right now in the moment, you are, if you're in Christ, loved by God. He is not angry. He is not withholding something from you because he's mean or bitter or anything like that. You are loved by God. And so Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Other translations say, do not be surprised at the burning test. When it comes upon you to look, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Okay. Peter's going to give us two things. First off that we don't do when suffering comes into our life. All right. Now, mainly what Peter is talking about is we're going to see, he's not talking about like the universal suffering of a, of a human being, sickness, death, you know, things like that. He's talking about specific suffering for your faith as a Christian, losing the promotion, losing the job, relationships breaking off, things like that. When He says, when that comes into your life, do not, first thing, do not be surprised. Now, why? Well, we've already said it. Listen, the religious mindset opposed to the Christian mindset, the religious mindset expects things to get easier and their life to go better once they start obeying the rules, right? All right, God, I'm going to missional community now. I'm reading my Bible now. I stopped doing that thing. Now make, fix my life. That's the religious mindset. And to the religious mindset, suffering comes as a shock, a shock, a a surprise to our system. Suffering is interpreted as a sign that we're doing something wrong and God is not pleased with us. Peter says here, that is no longer the case. That is the case in every other religion. If you are not obeying the rules, God is upset with you and God will punish you. If you're not praying the prayers or facing this way or doing all the things that you've got to do, you're not going to reach enlightenment. You're not going to have your best life now. It's all up to you and every other religion of the, of the world except Christianity. Paul says there's something that has happened now that changes the whole system. You can be beloved and yet still receive a burning test in your life a test that is meant to burn off the impurities. We have all kinds of illustrations throughout the the Bible. We have the illustrations of a silversmith, right? He puts the raw materials into uh, the pot. He melts it down. The dross rises to the top. That is not a pleasant experience for the silver as it's being purified, right? It's being heated up. It's a burning test to get all of the junk to come to the top so the silversmith can scoop the junk off and make this this into a pure silver, right? We have the illustration of a parent with kids. I've already given that. We have the illustration of a vine dresser and a vine. Uh, A few years back, I watched my neighbor. She had a beautiful apple tree that produced some pretty good apples. My kids loved it. And a friend of hers came over who... Uh, was an arborist, and he did the most violent thing I've ever seen a person do to a tree. Tree was basically a big circle. He basically cut off all the branches halfway and made it into big, like a big half circle. Completely just hacked the tree apart. And I, I looked at my wife and I said, well, there goes that tree. 
that and the next year didn't produce anything. And then the year after that, it literally produced probably five times more fruit than it had ever produced before. Why? Because his violent work, cutting, he knew what he was doing. He, he was cutting away everything that the tree didn't need so that it could produce bountiful fruit, right? All of these analogies are the same. This is the burning test of Christianity. Difficulties are going to come into our life and they're meant, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're meant for our good. I don't know what it was, right? They're meant for our good. So here, listen to this. Please hear me hold these two things together. Christians, you are beloved. Don't be surprised when the burning test comes into your life. You are beloved. Don't be surprised when the burning test comes into your life. Christianity is inviting a burning into, it's bringing a fire into our lap and asking God to burn off everything that's not good for us and that's not him. That's what Christianity is. Now, first, don't be surprised. How many of us, something happened? Why God? We lose our mind for a moment. Why? We're surprised. Every time that happens, guys, listen, it's a sign to us. It's a little warning light going off. You're, bre- you're believing a false gospel. You've bought into the American Christianity. You've bought into a different religion, a religion that every, once I believe it and once I follow Jesus, everything in my life is going to go better. When something bad comes into my life and a person hurts me or a person walks away from me or I shared the gospel and they backed away and they kind of ran away from me. These are burning tests that don't prove that our religion is wrong or prove that we're doing something wrong. It's actually proof that we're doing something right. It's a burning test. Second thing. So first one, do not be surprised when suffering comes. Secondly, but we're gonna look at this one. We're gonna skip a little bit. I'm gonna go through all of it. Uh, But first, let me get down to verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let him not be. Why would suffering as a Christian be shameful? Shame is a word that we don't use too often in our culture. Well, actually, we're, it's gaining some acceptance now for certain things. Um, shame is something nobody wants to feel, right? You kind of feel ostracized. You kind of pushed out to the margins when you feel ashamed. Why would Paul, why would Peter, I'm sorry, say, suffering is a reason to feel ashamed. He's saying, don't be ashamed by your suffering. It's interesting because the apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter one, verse 16. He says this, and it's very strange. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and the Greek next. What? Who just... I'm not ashamed to be a Christian. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would you have to say that? As I was reading this week, I'm reading a book on the crucifixion. And the author talks about, and I think many of us have lost sight of this. Um, I think one of the reasons Jesus was not born now and he was born 2,000 years ago is because the cross was, was an instrument of of execution back then, and it's no longer now. Jesus didn't just have to die. He had to die the way that he died. Let me show you this. The crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. Its whole design was meant to shame, humiliate, and disgrace even the most hardened criminals. Roman citizens were banned from being crucified. They couldn't be crucified. They, couldn't, they weren't even supposed to talk about the crucifixion. 
It was supposed, it was like a shameful word in their vernacular. Don't eat, Roman citizens don't even speak of it. Now listen, there is no current analog to the cross in our society. We have nothing similar in our society today. Scholar Fleming Rutledge in her phenomenal book on the crucifixion said this, listen, and this is important as we understand it. Crucifixion was the most godless way to die. It it was designed to shame, humiliate, and prove that someone was worse than their, I mean, worse than anything. Let Let me show you three ways that that they were doing it. First off, Jewish society and the Old Testament said that anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed by God spiritually cursed. It was a sign that God hated them. So when Jesus is nailed to the cross, this is a spiritual shaming. Obviously, he's not the son of God. God hates him. God wouldn't allow his son to die on a cross like that, like hardened murderers do. The bottom of the barrel of society, the worst of the worst get crucified. And here it is, the guy who says he's the son of God and he's on the cross and God doesn't rescue him spiritually shamed. Secondly, it is public humiliation. We don't understand this. Even the passion of the Christ, as violent and as kind of disgusting as that movie is, even Mel Gibson couldn't go far enough. He couldn't do what it actually was. He couldn't show what it actually was. They were naked Jesus, the son of God, was stripped naked. Is there anything more humiliating? Marched through the streets naked, carrying his own cross naked, beaten and whipped and tortured naked, publicly humiliated all of his followers. This was meant to shame all of his followers. This is your Messiah. This is your king. The naked guy dying on the cross, more than likely becoming incontinent on the cross. That's your Messiah, right? This is complete relational and emotional shame, debilitating. It's why Peter himself, who's writing this, ran at this moment in his life. And lastly, obviously, it's physical abuse. So we got, it's spiritual shaming, it's emotional shaming, it's relational shaming, and it's physical shaming. It was torture. Jesus could, couldn't even carry his cross, the, the cross beam to the cross. He fell and had to have Simon of Cyrene pick it up and help him carry it with him. See, the cross was the most shameful way to die and it was meant to shame Jesus. Therefore, Jesus, or just any, a crucified, my, a crucified Messiah is a shameful savior. It's worth laughing about. It's, they, they would mock it. It's an embarrassment. Jesus' death, listen, would have been seen as absolutely repulsive. How could the Son of God ever die a godless death? And I I can't stress enough how big of a hurdle this would have been for first century believers to get over. It would have fried the circuits in their brain. Everything they knew about religion was God's Messiah will come and everything will be better and God loves his son. And so this, this, you know, it's gonna be upward, upward, upward trajectory to see God's son hang naked and incontinent on the cross and then crucified at the hands of torturous Roman guards under the authority of the religious establishment. All the religious Jewish people were saying, crucify this guy, he's a heretic. Everyone condemned him. To all of a sudden go, I'm gonna worship that guy. It's a a significant hurdle that we can't get, get past, but it's also a great apologetic of the gospel. It's it's proof that it's true. It's proof that it's real. Because we see a guy named Saul. 
one of the religious elite, one of the Jewish religious leaders. He was a public intellectual. He would have been completely repulsed by the idea of worshiping a crucified savior. This is why in the beginning, he was dead set on snuffing out Christianity by imprisoning those who worship Jesus and even killing or participating in the murder of Stephen. Saul, a crucified savior, that's shameful, that's disgusting. I can't believe anybody would even think about worshiping a God like that. But then we know that Saul gets converted and becomes one of the strongest proponents of Christianity, writing two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, how does that happen? How do you go completely intellectually opposed to the idea and affectionately everything in your life, opposed to the idea of a crucified Messiah, Messiah, right, to this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul then writes, I know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Please see this. The most repulsive idea to this man became his most cherished belief. Something he was diametrically opposed to, all of a sudden he becomes, I don't even want to know nothing else except this crucified Messiah. That's all I want to talk about. That's all I want to think about. That's all I want to preach about. That's all I want to teach about is his crucified Messiah. How does that happen? I'll tell you, an argument doesn't do that. Facebook posts won't do that. Saul, on the road to Damascus, meets the resurrected Jesus Christ. Why are you persecuting me? He gets knocked off his horse. Who are you? I'm Jesus Christ. Now, this is the the greatest oh crap moment in your life. Oh, I've been killing God's people. My entire religious mindset is garbage. Do good and God blesses you. Garbage. Do everything you can to avoid the shame of the cross. Avoid shameful things like that. Avoid suffering. It's all garbage. See, this is why Paul had to say in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it was shameful to believe that a crucified Messiah could be our king a guy who died that way. And Peter here is making this connection. He says the suffering of Jesus is the pattern for his disciples to follow. The suffering of Jesus makes the suffering of the Christian normative. This is what Jesus meant when he said, Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus was not thinking of some nice little cute ornament that we hang around our neck. Take up your cross. The cross was the most disgusting instrument of death. I can't, I told you, there's no current analog to it. You can't talk about the, the electric chair. You can't talk about an injection needle. You can't talk to, those things are all humane ways to die compared to the cross. And he's saying, take it up and follow me. And now your life is going to be defined by this instrument of death. The Christian will, if they're living the Christian life, will suffer because of their association with Jesus. Beloved, don't be surprised and don't be ashamed when the burning test comes to you. Some will suffer more. We know this. If you read online about Christians suffering in other countries, persecuted, killed, lined up on beaches, beheaded, happening right now. And some will suffer less, but all Christians will suffer. Peter's saying, don't be surprised and and don't be ashamed. Jesus suffered. You will suffer for his name. Suffering does not mean you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean God is upset with you. No, you are beloved. And suffering is nothing to be ashamed of. Let's keep reading here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial or the burning when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Well, how are we supposed to respond to it then? Here it is, two ways. First, 
but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, this is a key piece here. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. How are we supposed to respond to suffering when it comes into our life? Two things. First, we're to rejoice. And then second, he's going to tell us, excuse me, we need to do good. What does it mean to rejoice? He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That means rejoice to such an extent that you are suffering for the right reasons. Your obedience to Jesus causes you to suffer. Now listen, suffering is not universally good, right? We don't just, you know, you know what? I feel like suffering today. I'm going to throw myself in front of this moving vehicle, right? It's good to be, you know, I'm going to participate with Jesus. I'm going to, you know, know what it feels like to be hurt. Bam, right? That's not what he's saying. There's nothing masochistic about this. He goes on to say, look, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, see, he's clarifying. There is no benefit for suffering because you are an idiot, now, I'm going to say that because I've had many people come to me and they're a terrible employee and their boss brings suffering into their life and they kind of try to tell me that this is just, just being a Christian, taking up my cross. No, you're not taking up your cross. You're a terrible employee. You're, you're an idiot. You're late all the time. You should get fired. This has nothing to do with your faith. Right? He goes on to say this. I love it. Look, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I'm going to get into that. But look, let none of you suffer as a murderer, right? Guys behind bars, oh, I'm just suffering for Jesus. You killed someone. You're not suffering because of Jesus. You're a murderer. Or a thief, right? You got caught stealing. You're paying your consequences. You're not suffering. This is, there's no redemptive suffering in this. You're not, you know, participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now look at this. I lo- or an evildoer. You're doing bad stuff. Suffering's going to come into your life. That's not redemptive. Or lastly, or as a meddler. A meddler. Most of us are like, well, pfft, I have no idea what that means, so it can't be me. A meddler. Another translation, a busybody. a Facebook stalker, a person who's always in somebody else's business. Peter's saying, if you are meddling in other people's business and then you lose relationships, that's not redemptive suffering that I'm talking about. That's not a burning test that I'm talking about. That's you being a meddler. So Peter is showing us here that there's a certain type of suffering that that he's talking about and some types of suffering that he's not talking about. Now, I want us to get into what does it mean specifically here when he says that we're to rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings, that you may, look, also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This part is, pro- is one of the most important for us to understand, and it's, gonna, it's, it's not easy to understand. When God brings burning tests into our life, it is not just to make us into better people. Okay? It's not just to build our character. There, that does happen. That is a consequence of it. But in this text, that's not what he's talking about. Well, let, me, let me just go on and, and, and clarify because we look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, so there's two ways to suffer. You can suffer for being a fool or being a meddler or being a sinner, right? And then there's a certain way you can suffer as a Christian for the name of Christ. If anyone who suffers as a Christian Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now look, verse 17. For it is time for judgment burning to begin 
at the household of God. And if he begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, what is he talking about here? Oh, it's very difficult. A part of the term justification and the term righteousness, these are two terms that come from the same Greek family of words. And one scholar says a better term for either of those, justification and righteousness, is the term rectify. Rectify. Now, I want you to hear this. God, through Jesus, is rectifying the world. He's fixing it. He's repairing it. And part of that is judging evil and judging wickedness and getting evil and getting wickedness off of the planet, out of human beings, right? And what we're told in the story of the gospel is that Jesus has paid for our guilt and paid for our condemnation and took our place and bore our shame in the cross. And then he was resurrected to new life. And what this resurrected did, resurrection did was seal forever the final result of God's salvation, which is not just the salvation of our souls, but the rectification of the whole universe. And Jesus is extended, he ascends to the Father at the right hand and then what's, and he's glorified. He gets a new body, right? And when he comes back, he's bringing with him, he's gonna show us the display of his, of his glory. We're gonna once finally see the one who was shamed, the one who was crucified, now he's gonna come back in his glory. And this is so amazing. He's not just gonna show us his glory, he's gonna glorify us and all of the universe, He's going to judge, rectify, fix, repair us and all of the universe. Now, okay, here's how that happens. For the Christian, that process of rectification begins when we accept Christ into our life and he takes our place. We, we, listen, we have been judged when Jesus was judged on the cross. Now, Here's the story. When God brings burning into our life, it's a judgment coming to prepare us for our eternal glory, to prepare us for all things to be made right in the new heavens and the new earth. It is a judgment though. God is doing something in us and what it's meant to do, it's meant to prove to us, to the world, that we're really Christians. Why am I willing to, to make my life more difficult? Why am I willing to submit myself to suffering? Because Jesus Christ has been judged for me and I have faith now that he's going to bring his kingdom and fix everything. But for those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ, their judgment is future. And upon their death, they will be judged based upon their sins and their profession of faith. If they've never put their faith in Jesus Christ, then they will be judged forever. Now listen, here's what he's saying. Just as Jesus' suffering preceded his resurrection and glorification, so too does our suffering in this life precede our glorification. It's evidence that we're going to be glorified. It's evidence that we are Christ's. We're willing to suffer. The eyes of faith allow us to rejoice now in that reality. I'm willing to go through this because Christ has already gone through it. And I can rejoice because just as Christ was glorified, I too am going to be glorified. When a person endures suffering for Christ instead of sinning, instead of staying silent, they are giving evidence, look at verses 14 through 16, that we see that the Holy Spirit is in them. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. It's evidence that I'm in Christ. They persecuted my Savior, they're gonna persecute me. Because look, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, 
I've already said it once, I'm going to say it again. This is not masochistic. Jesus was not skipping in the garden, right? The garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. Here's what it is. It is receiving suffering with the settled disposition of one who has surrendered themselves to the sovereign will of God. It's the complete opposite of religion. Religion says, here's what you have to do to get God to do what you want him to do. God's your divine assistant. Christianity is, I am God's servant. I surrender myself to his sovereign will. So that's it. Peter says, rejoice when the burning test comes into your life. And the second thing he says is, do good. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. First off, can we just say that verse is is the last nail in the coffin of American Christianity. I've called it before bourgeois Christianity, middle-class Christianity. Look, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. God wills the burning test to come into our life as a good father. Look, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, here it is, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So often, often, Suffering is used as an excuse to sin. An excuse to get drunk, an excuse to cheat on your spouse, or an excuse just to stay at home and be lazy. My life is difficult. Look what's happening. Woe is me. Peter says, no. When suffering comes into your life, rejoice. God's at work. And do good. Continue to bring glory to God during your suffering by doing good. Here, let me just say it like this. Suffering is no reason to get off mission. Now, in this text, as I close here, you begin to see the entire difference between Christianity and all the world's religions. All the world's religions or about working hard to get God in your debt, and then the God has to kind of give you a good life here or after. That's not Christianity. See, I, I can't just tell you this morning, okay, when, when suffering comes into your life, uh, don't be surprised by it. Don't be ashamed of it. Actually rejoice and then do, do good. Good luck with that, Right? Now, that message isn't wrong. All those things are wrong, but that message is just like every other inspirational talk, you know, speech writer out there. Here's what you should do. Go do it. Christianity is not like that at all. The only way for you to do what I've already prescribed, what Peter's already prescribed for us, the only way for you to count it joy when suffering comes into your life and you're not surprised by it and you're not ashamed by it is if you're able to do this right here. What's he say? Entrust yourself to your faithful creator. This is the key to gospel obedience. It's about trust, not trying harder. Tim Keller has used this illustration sometime in the past and he, to illustrate trust. And he talks about a person who's falling off the edge of a cliff. And he reaches out and he grabs on to something, right? He reaches out and he grabs on to something. Now, here's the reality. He reaches out and he grabs on to a firm and sturdy tree branch. That thing, the object of his trust is going to save him. It's not his trust, right? He, he's just flailing and grabs this thing, right? But if he reaches out and he grabs something flimsy, He grabs a piece of grass. He grabs something light. 
As he grabs, he can trust that thing. He could say, all right, there it is. I'm going to grab it. And he grabs it with all of his might. He grabs it with both hands. And that thing, if it's weak, it pulls away from the side of the cliff and he dies a perilous death. It wasn't his trust that was the problem. It was the object that he trusted that was the problem. And Jesus Christ is the most trustworthy person to ever live. You can entrust your life to him. Listen, you can't entrust your life and your soul to me. I'll fail you. You can't entrust it to your spouse. You can't entrust it to your career. You can't entrust it to your kids. They're not meant for it. They're too weak to hold the reality of your soul, the weight of your soul. But Christ can hold it. He's trustworthy. You say, well, why? Why can I trust him more than anything else? Why can I say, Lord, I don't know what's going on in my life, but I trust you. Look what he's done for you. Has anyone ever gave you so much to prove their love for you? Has anyone ever been so faithful to you? Jesus didn't quit. He he didn't walk away from the cross. He could have ran from the garden as soon as the weight of sin was being put on him and he began to sweat drops of blood. He could have called an audible and no, I'm done. And he even cried to God, you know, he's like, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. The the Bible tells us he could have called 10,000 angels to his side on the cross to rescue him but he didn't. He stayed and he stayed for you and he stayed for me and he stayed for the redemption of the cosmos. No one's ever loved you like that. No one's ever been faithful to you like that. No one's ever endured that type of shame for you. You can trust him. And so that's what I've, invite you to this morning. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me pray. Father, this is so contradictory to what we naturally believe down in our guts. The message of this text and the message of your gospel goes upstream, goes against the current in our culture and our kind of religious mindset that wants to interpret suffering as evil, as wicked, as bad, as non-redemptive, as shameful, as surprising. And yet we look to our crucified Savior. despised the shame of the cross and endured it for us. I pray that a greater realization of what you did on the cross would give us greater faith, greater ability to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator while doing good. We won't get off mission. We'll continue to pray the prayers. We'll continue to share our faith. We'll continue to live out the implications of our faith in our workplace. We'll continue to do good in our city, even as our neighbors ridicule us, even as our bosses reject us, even as ultimatums are laid down by our governments that say, if you do this, you'll get in trouble. Father, that we could continue to be faithful and do good. Embracing suffering when it comes because of our faithfulness to you. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I'm reminded just how far you went, how faithful you were to God, how faithful you were to us. You didn't just theoretically love us. Your body was broken and your blood was shed to save us from our sins. When we come this morning and we take the supper, we take the bread, 
and the wine and we bring it into ourselves and we're reminded of how much you love us and how far you went to save us. And you said that you're going to be, you're present here. You're with us here. That we're, Paul tells us in Corinthians, every time we partake of this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Father, this is a memory to us that our best life isn't right now. That our best life is coming when Christ comes back to glorify us and the whole world. And we put our hope and our faith and our trust in that this morning. I pray that you would encourage us to turn from our sin, to repent of the ways we're entrusting in everything else but you, to repent of the ways we're hiding our Christianity or hiding our light under a bushel because of fear of being persecuted, fear of being ostracized. Father, do a good work in us, your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.